2: Hello everybody and welcome back to the New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Michikanis, the host of today's podcast, and today we'll be talking to Professor Robert Hutchinson about his new book, After Nuremberg, American Clemency for Nazi War Criminals. Robert Hutchinson is an Assistant Professor of Strategy and Security Studies at the U.S. Air Force School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. He is also the author of German Foreign Intelligence from Hitler's War to the Cold War, Flawed Assumptions and Faulty Analysis, among other academic publications in the Journal of Military History and Central European History. Professor Hutchinson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you.
1: Very happy to be here. Mm -hmm.
2: So let's jump right in here. So could you tell our audience a little bit about this story of Nuremberg and how your work came together with this book?
1: Sure. Um, it's it's funny. This actually is one of those things that grew out of an article project. Um, I've been poking around in the National Archives and was curious if there was anything of interest left to say. Uh, about Nuremberg. Uh, this was right after kind of uh, Kim Christian Primal's uh, definitive study had come out um, and there had been other works by Kevin John Heller. Um, and honestly, uh, after reading Kim Christian Premal's The Betrayal, I was—I uh, distinctly remember thinking that this project was going nowhere uh, because there was nothing left to say at all uh, and nothing new or interesting to add to the trials because uh, there's been this kind of renaissance in scholarship recently. But I did think that maybe there was something interesting to say about Landsberg prison itself, kind of akin to what uh, Norman Goda had done with his book on Spandau. And when I pulled the Landsberg files, the first thing I came across was this these individual prisoner files, uh, which included kind of quite detailed uh, clemency and parole records. Uh, these were quite substantial and Frankly, I found the legal rationales in there for sentence reductions that I found, uh, frankly, rather bizarre and uh, kind of strange, and they didn't really make a lot of sense to me. So I wanted to explore that, and I thought it was interesting. And so I thought, oh, maybe there's an article in here. Uh, So I drew up a conference paper and presented some findings, and I got enough good questions that I went back uh, to the archives to answer them, and uh, this kind of spun into a broader project which is probably the exact wrong way to go about writing a book, right? It's just, it's just, but, but it worked this way, uh, at least I think it did. Um, because when I went back to the archives to, to answer these questions, the source base I found was incredibly rich. Uh, there, was, um, there was some stuff on the later years from like 55 to 58 that had still been classified at the time uh, that uh, no one had looked at, and I pulled that and found some interesting material there. Uh, There were great records from the U.S. occupation, supplemented by these quite kind of revealing parole officer reports and also first-person narratives from the war criminals themselves. So I was really intrigued by the source base, which kind of, in my view, cut quite nicely between high diplomacy and institutional history of the U.S. occupation, uh, the history of ideas, and even kind of these social history snapshots of the prisoners themselves and their attempts to reintegrate into West German society and their self-conceptions and so forth. Um, and so one last point on on, on this, um, all of this material comes from the National Archives, which I think is significant. Um, I, I made a conscious choice from the beginning, just given the shape of the, of the scholarship on the subject, that I wanted to really privilege the American records in this story, right? Because the story of um, coming to terms with the past in, in West Germany in particular uh, is so dominated by these internal political divisions of you know, Con- Chancellor Conrad Adenauer and his efforts to remake a government to forge a democracy with, out from under the shadow of the Americans. And you get this narrative in the scholarship with Norbert Fry and Jeffrey Herf where there's this kind of trade off where you can have democracy or you can have justice, but you can't have both. right? And I think that's interesting. And I think that's true. Uh, but one of the things, the trend I've noticed in occupation studies uh, in particular, um, especially with reference to Germany, is this kind of, in the current scholarship, this, this interest in similar power dynamics where the occupied, even though they have less power than the occupier, can leverage that limited power in order to extract policy concessions uh, and uh, punch above their weight uh, through careful political maneuverings, public protests, leveraging authority, and that sort of thing. And I think that's true. And I think that's interesting. But I was struck when I was doing the research for this about when it comes to the issue of specifically the Nuremberg War Criminals, uh, these are people that were tried by the United States government uh, in front of judges from the United States under U.S. laws and procedure, and they were wards of, of U.S. occupation and then the U.S. State Department. There was nothing that the West German government could do one way or another to make the Americans act one way or another when it came to the specific question of the war criminals. The Americans had to do it themselves. And so I wanted to tell this story as an American story, uh, which I I believe fundamentally it is, right? Um, it's, it's a story of American occupation officials, State Department officials uh, and the like, convincing themselves uh, to do something uh, that seemed rather kind of counterintuitive uh, from you know, going from in 1948, 49, wrapping up this program of war crimes trials through already by 1951 and kind of unwinding it. Uh, and that's I was I was really struck struck by that. Uh, so that's why I, I decided to privilege the, the American side and, and these files.
2: Mm-hmm. When well, you you emphasize the importance that this is one grounded in American policy, you write that the undermining of the Nuremberg settlement and the sublimation of the Nazi past that it entailed was a cooperative effort, but it was one grounded in American policy. And you've mentioned some of the other historians like Norbert um, Fry and, and Jeffrey Herf. but I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit um, in terms of was this generally viewed as a German openness to kind of just moving on, or was this a product of the Cold War and policy to um, take advantage of, you know, now a newly established West Germany? What what are your thoughts as you were writing the book and what you found in, in your research?
1: Yeah, what I expected to find when I went in was kind of, a, and one of the reasons I was initially unsure if this project would go all the way through to the end, was I expected to find what everyone else had already found, uh, which is kind of it's, I don't mean to grossly oversimplify, but the idea that, uh, well, you know, there was this policy of incarcerating war criminals uh, that went from 45 to 49, uh, and then there's a policy shift after that, uh, where from, uh, I don't know, 51 to 58, you have the unwinding of this program and every uh, person uh, goes free, apart from a few who were executed and that sort of thing. And so, well, what changed? And if you're a historian and you're looking at change over time, the easy answer is, well, the Cold War changed, uh, and you can't ignore that. Right. So uh, you have this tremendous shift in international relations, the breakdown of the, of the wartime alliance, uh, the emergence of an Iron Curtain, the emergence of a divided Germany, uh, the, emer- the Korean War, all of these things. And so I expected to see kind of the story of, of political expediency that matched, frankly, a lot of the criticism that was flung uh, at American occupation officials uh, when these clemency procedures first started coming out, uh, that this was an exercise in kind of Cold War power politics, uh, that this is a price, uh, winding down the war crimes program is a price for acceding uh, West German participation in anti-Soviet alliance, right? And so that's kind of the, the through line in a lot of the scholarship. And it's... And it's Broadly speaking, I agree with that. We're going to call it a meta narrative. I agree that it's true, uh, especially when it comes to broader issues of occupation policy, like the winding down of American sovereignty over West Germany, right? Um, taking uh, a little, being a little less in. in Having a little less intervention in the German economy, right? Not being as concerned with the reconstruction of uh, along the lines of kind of New Deal trust busting American style capitalism, right? So taking the hand off the tiller uh, in the economy, maybe winding back the process of denazification, especially for the lesser offenders and the local tribunals and courts and that sort of thing. Like that's that's all there and that's all true. But when it comes to this specific issue of, well, you know these people, uh, the Nuremberg war criminals, are not petty offenders. Uh, these are high-ranking uh, individuals from across all strata of the Nazi dictatorship. Their incarceration was, in many ways, um, I've seen this in the scholarship. I hesitate to use this phrase, but it's such a great phrase. I want to, I want to use it. Uh, if you conceive of these as liberal show trials. Right, because they have such a pedagogical purpose to them. Right, that you're putting the Nazi dictatorship on trial, uh, and you're incarcerating individuals, uh, not just for the crimes that they committed as individuals, but also as representatives of, of something else. Uh, and so, this was initially a, a kind of a bedrock cornerstone of the American occupation. But so, when it comes to this, like, well, why? What does this have to do with the Cold War? And when I dug down, it actually isn't. It's, it comes out. Uh, That policy reversal comes out of a lot more, uh, when I said it's an American story, there's a lot more domestic concerns. Uh, This starts, and and Steve Remy, by the way, I want to give a plug uh, for him. He has an excellent book on the Malmedy Massacre trial uh, that goes and charts uh, a lot of the same uh, territory uh, in the initial part, where you have this kind of congressional controversy, all these wild allegations that the U.S. Army uh, tortured prisoners at Dachau, uh, that, that kind of comes out in the press in 47, 48, becomes a big scandal uh, forces a number of House and Senate congressional investigations into the U.S. Army war crimes trial program that bleeds over into investigations of the Nuremberg trial program and a, and a desire uh, to have uh, U.S. occupation officials really look into uh, the records to make sure that justice had been done. And so you get this, this preoccupation with justice as a driving force forward that exists on a separate plane from the Cold War. Like if you look at and I talk about this a fair bit, I don't want to get into like mine numbing details of like treaties and so forth. But if you look at how the question of West German rearmament plays out and the time scale at which it plays out, all of these uh, decisions uh, to kind of start winding down uh, the incarceration of Nuremberg war criminals took place well before um, the the Cold War heated up uh, in late 51 as the consequences of the Korean War kind of filtered down.
2: Mm-hmm. No, and, and so for many of our readers, the or excuse me, many of our listeners and many of the readers for this book, the Nuremberg trials almost kind of seem as this major event, justices dispense. And your book actually says it's a little more complicated than that, especially in the aftermath. And so to kind of get a good view of that, one of your key historical actors is John J. McCoy. And so many German historians are going to be very familiar with him. But in particular, could you talk a little bit about who John J. McCoy was and why he decides after the Nuremberg trials and when he comes to Germany to establish this independent advisory board that's concerned with legal decisions in Nuremberg. Yeah, John J.
1: McCoy is a fascinating figure to me. He's like a meme. Like he just keeps popping up in the, like every significant U.S. foreign policy decision that's controversial of some kind, especially during the Second World War. Like he's there for Japanese-American incarceration. He's there for, uh, against the, uh, uh, bombing auschwitz he's there uh for he's there for this and he's there in the 60s too with the cuban missile crisis uh kai bird has a great biography on on john mccoy um so you know John J. McFloy is a a figure of transition, right? Uh, He replaces Lucius Clay, uh, who had been the military governor of occupied Germany, as the civilian representative. When Lucius Clay retires, his duties are split uh, in two ways. Uh, All kind of the civilian occupation authorities, which includes supervision over the Nuremberg uh, prisoners, are kind of devolved to the State Department. And then the military occupation authorities remain under uh, European command with uh, Thomas Handy. And so McCoy comes in in 49 uh, with the kind of the distinct purpose of, you know, the German... American reconstruction of West Germany is running its course. And here you have a person who's a Wall Street banker by background. He's a lawyer. Uh, He's just coming off of a presidency of the World Bank. So um, his tenure is going to be defined by trying to kind of reintegrate West Germany into the world financial system, uh, propping up the economy and that sort of thing. So a transition to normalcy. However, John McFloy is also an advocate for the Nuremberg Trials. Uh, he's a Republican, uh, but an internationalist one. He's not skeptical about this. He he believes that justice needs to be done, and you see this in in his speeches and, and writings. While he is willing to contenance that perhaps. Uh, the broader process of denazification of petty offenders and so forth needs to come to an end uh, because uh, it's time to transition towards normalcy. He, uh, like Brooks, very little um, nonsense uh, from West German amnesty advocates, from anyone who questioned the legitimacy of the Nuremberg tribunals, or what they've accomplished, because he right, understands that there's a difference between major offenders and minor offenders, and that some people should be entirely separated from the body politic because the, their crimes under the regime were so serious. So this is what makes him an interesting figure, right? Because personally, he believes in the project of Nuremberg, um, and he defends himself quite vigorously, and he sees what he's doing as quite consistent with that. And what seems to motivate him uh, most specifically, I mean, there's some minor kind of personal issues where he's particularly troubled when he gets there about having to carry out some executions. Um, He's a man of deep faith um, and uh, conscientiousness and the idea of presiding over, you know, hangings and that sort of thing kind of uh, really affects him in a deep personal level. So that's that's one minor portion of it. So he wants to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Uh, but all more generally, he's motivated by this issue of what I call American justice. And he uses those words as well, which is to say that the United States should hold itself to a higher standard, uh, especially during the Cold War. And so this is the one kind of crossover dimension with the Cold War, this kind of political self understanding of the Soviet Union is the land of show trials and lack of due process under the law uh, and that sort of thing. And the United States cannot, should not, uh, will not do that. Uh, And so when it comes to the Nuremberg trials, um, McCloy believes, he actually says this multiple times on the record, that a fundamental principle of American justice is the right to appeal a conviction, uh, which is interesting, it's high-minded, it's also kind of bizarre because th- that this is not a fundamental principle of American justice. A fundamental principle of American justice is a fair trial, uh, you know, with, and, and rules and procedures uh not necessarily this kind of endless appellate process where you can introduce new evidence and so forth but as a lawyer he's very preoccupied with this uh, the idea that the nuremberg trials are special uh they are tribunals uh but they have a start point and have they have an end point and there's no appellate court there's no place to appeal uh there's no place for if someone was wrongly convicted and i i just we're, we're not recording video right now, but I just used air quotes for wrongly convicted. Uh, but the idea that if someone was wrongly convicted, they have a right to redress because that's only fair. That's only just, that's what American justice is. And because the Nuremberg trials are very special and unprecedented, they don't have those institutions. Uh, and so what you have here is a, a mixture of one, these kind of bureaucratic impulses to re-examine the sentences, to make sure uh, everything's above board, mixed with these personal uh and McCloy's not alone, by the way, his staff shares these ideas, this personal kind of idealism about what justice is or should be um, and how this means that uh, everyone deserves a second chance. All the convicts deserve a second by the apple. They deserve to be able to present affidavits, uncover new evidence, contest their convictions, appeal their convictions. But the problem is the machinery institutionally and legally doesn't exist for any of this. And so uh, what McCloy ends up doing and what happens as a result of this kind of quite by accident is you have this kind of appellate process of appealing convictions grafted onto a clemency process, uh, and you get a lot of irregularities there. Uh, But that's where it it comes all the way through, and really the sort of what you'd expect in terms of Cold War cynicism only comes out in the very last days of this process. 1957 1958 when it's already gone so far down the road of you know everyone except for three or four people have already been freed and so well we got to figure out how to get rid of these people too even though it's you have to hold our noses and let them go because that's not um it's not fair to leave them imprisoned when everyone else has already gone free i mean so at the very end you get this kind of cold war-esque cynicism but from the vast majority of the time period i'm talking about there's this conception this deep interest in fairness and justice as American traits uh, that need to be demonstrated on the world stage
2: mm-hmm. when once this advisory committee is established, you do a really deep analysis of what, the prisoners begin submitting in terms of their evidence for why their cases should be examined. And these cases in particular from Landsberg prison reveal a lot about the convicted people there. What in your research uh, stood out to you? I mean, they tell us a lot about support for Nazism during the war, and they try to bring in character witnesses, particularly family or friends, to talk about um, almost this middle-class upbringing for some of them. Um, and and could you tell our audience a little bit about what these uh, what the advisors committee has to read in these reports from from those that had been convicted at Nuremberg?
1: Yeah. So as you're saying, once the decision is made uh, that uh, there's going to be uh, a review process of all all the sentences, uh, the prisoners, there's a clemency panel is formed, the advisory board on clemency for German war criminals. And the prisoners are told about this and they're all encouraged to put petitions together. Everyone is encouraged, whether they want to or not. Uh, that, hey, your sentences are going to be re-examined by this committee. Uh, Now's your chance to speak on your own behalf. And this is a little different than what's come before because they've all had lawyers and the lawyers have been trying to – Leverage all the different ways, uh, mechanisms in the American court system to try to reduce their sentences. So they've appealed to federal courts, they've appealed on legal grounds to the Supreme Court, all of these appeals have been rejected. Uh, they've appealed on evidentiary grounds uh, by denying the legitimacy of the trials and that sort of thing. And so what makes this process in 1950 a little different and interesting uh, from a historian's perspective is that uh, the voices that are privileged in this round of petitions aren't the voices of the lawyers. The, the voices of the lawyers are still there, but it's the voices of the prisoners themselves. They're asked to write personal statements. Some of them write you know, two pages, some of them write 30, 40, 50, uh, where they're reflecting kind of deeply on who they are, how they got here, and why they deserve mercy. And a lot of it is just you know, um, repeating a bunch of abject nonsense about how uh, they didn't do anything and uh, uh, they were never in charge of anything and how American trial procedures were unfair and the Americans didn't understand how complex uh, life actually was under the Nazi dictatorship and all of that. But there's also these really kind of revealing uh, personal um this, re- this revealing personal biographies that they present. And I found that very interesting. No surprises uh, to the audience or me that uh, these people um, are Nazis for the most part. Uh, they'll tell you that they're not. Um, they can't, they make a great deal of effort to explain away their wartime actions. Um, they have an incredibly difficult time uh, coming to reckon with their own pasts. So they prefer to think of themselves as kind of uh flecks of dust uh, driven by a, a tempestuous wind, right? They have no agency over anything that they've done. And and they constantly kind of highlight um, the similarities that they have with what they think are their American captors as a way to to prove that they're not real criminals, right? Because real criminals are murderers and rapists and thieves. These people are, you know, middle-class businessmen. They're doctors, they're lawyers, uh, they're high-ranking military officers, uh, civil servants and the like, uh, industrialists, businessmen, men of affairs. Uh, They're people who come from stable households. They enjoyed high income. They're well-educated. They're cultured. uh, And they don't understand how uh, the, their American captors could possibly view them as criminals because the real criminals uh, are certainly not them, but uh, Hitler uh, or, or elsewhere. And so it it's fascinating in the sense that you, there's a lot of revealing um, uh statements in there about motivations or now we all have to take this with a grain of salt, right? Because they're uh, presenting their stories to, in a very particular way to a particular audience in order to present themselves in their best possible light. But this general, it, it's consistent from, in all the petitions from 49 to 58 and even in the parole reports for those who were released and so forth, that these people never recognize as a collective, they never recognize uh, that their wartime actions were wrong. They never uh, agree that, uh, they are part of a broader system that encourages you know, theft, slave labor, murder, uh, aggressive warfare, and that sort of thing. And um, they keep clinging to this former identity of uh, middle class respectability, of ape. Uh, An apolitical identity, even though uh, for a bunch of apolitical people, they are incredibly concerned about Bolshevism, Uh, but that's not political, right? Uh, Protecting uh, Germany from the rise of the communist menace is not political, and everything they did, they did for that reason, and and that's about as close as they come to... um, admitting culpability in any of these affairs. And what's most striking about all this, it, perhaps it shouldn't be, but considering that this is a story about clemency and mercy, uh, especially executive clemency, and as we understand it, in the Anglo-American tradition, there is not one instance where any of these uh, figures convicted at Nuremberg attempt to express remorse, regret, reputance, uh, anything along those lines. Uh, instead, they maintain this kind of strident um, insistence on their own innocence and the illegitimacy of the trial proceedings from the start all the way to the end
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So the Landsberg Report's are just fascinating to read, um, mainly because they also show us the broad support that Nazism had uh, both before the war and during the war and how really it wasn't just limited to one particular class or group. It really was um, across the spectrum of the German population here. And so, um, Rob, your work discusses that the advisory board, which you know is referred to as the Peck panel, because it's under Judge David Peck, begins receiving these requests. And I'm wondering if you could actually tell us a little bit about um, Judge David Peck and maybe the background surrounding how someone like him comes into this position, because this really shows us the networks that exist in American politics at the time. And then also, once the PEC panel begins receiving these requests from German prisoners. How do they feel about Nuremberg and the convictions that were handed out?
1: So one of the things that that struck me, and this, especially for this period, it's not Atypical, but it's important to remember is how networked all of this is, right? So um, McCloy is brought in because of his experience uh, in the War Department and at the World Bank, uh, even in spite of his kind of internationalist Republican politics. Um, and so McCloy reaches out for experts who good help, he calls it, to advise him on this kind of complicated question, which he has both an analytical stake, he wants justice to be done, but also a personal stake um, as, as a person who is nervous about, um, he, he seems very nervous about accidentally executing an innocent person, uh, which, you know, that's a whole separate ball of wax as to whether you could claim any of these people are innocent with any reasonable, but in any case. So the he reaches out to a good friend of his uh, Republican uh, governor of the state of New York, Thomas Dewey, um, and asks for a recommendation of a, of a top-notch jurist. And this is where David Peck comes from. He's the head of the New York Appellate Division at that point in time, appointed by Dewey. Um, he's, in fact, the only I believe he was the only Republican uh, who served as a chief justice uh, at the time. Um, and his career rise had been kind of shepherded by Dewey. So another internationalist Republican there. Uh, the second member of the board uh, who McCloy had known personally uh, from when he was at Harvard uh, was Conrad Snow, uh, who was uh, the head of a Law Review, but a longtime uh, fixture in the War Department as well, who McCloy had run across in his prior service in the War Department. And also uh, had been on the Roberts Board which was a clemency board uh, pertaining to U.S. soldiers uh, who had committed crimes during the Second World War. Their sentences were all reviewed uh, after uh, 1946, and Snow, so Snow had experience in clemency matters. And, that sort of, and the third member of the board was also a protege of Dewey from the state of New York, the head of the New York State Board of Parole, uh, Frederick Moran, who was a proponent of what he referred to as a progressive parole system. Uh, this is, these ideas are not entirely new in 1949. They had been percolating in us kind of penal discourse since the 19th the Progressive Era all the way forward but they're ascendant now and the idea is that the purpose of punishment is not uh, is not punishment but rehabilitation uh, so it's not punitive uh, it is rehabilitative and so if you're looking collectively at what ideas they bring to their work uh, in the PEC panel you have kind of A healthy skepticism of of Nuremberg in the sense that uh, there's a real care and dedication to make sure that justice has been done along the lines of what McCoy is looking for. Um, The idea that American justice is special, and so all the eyes... uh, Need to be dotted and the t's need to be crossed and all the evidence needs to line up and we are very preoccupied with uh notions of individual guilt versus collective responsibility and they want to make sure that every individual who's been convicted uh has there's an individual basis for that Uh, but they're also concerned with their inclined towards clemency uh to grant it where it can be found um and uh, because of their views that uh, the purpose of punishment uh, should be for the good of society. And so this runs up ultimately uh, with this kind of deeper question, saying, well, what is the purpose of confinement or punishment in, in international law as opposed to in domestic law, right? Um, international law is almost inherently punitive uh, because you're trying to deter future actors, uh, whereas uh, criminal law is is not necessarily that way. I mean, some people, this breaks down in contemporary terms of the debate over capital punishment, right? Like, is there actually a deterrent effect or not? Uh, Is there a deterrent effect for incarcerating people for long periods of time or not? Um, The whole genesis of the Nuremberg trials, Telford Taylor's vision is that no, this is for a deterrent effect. This is to prevent anything like this from ever happening again. So these people will be punished uh, extensively because of that. Uh, Whereas all of these folks coming from state level um, U.S. criminal uh, backgrounds and appeal programs and that sort of thing are much more concerned about well what purpose does this serve for society? Um, And so that's a a real tension that will be navigated uh, over the next decade. uh, But it starts here. Now, when they look at Nuremberg itself and they get into the actual case files, that is... There's a lot that goes into that. And I'll I'll try to be brief. But essentially, this is a a rushed and incomplete process. uh, And I'll elaborate on what I mean by that. So it's rushed in the literal sense uh, where uh, Peck and his uh, two other panelists are working this in in, during his summer recess. Right. So he's got from the end of June till the beginning of September (laughs) to do this. Uh, And we're going to review, it turns out, I think at the time, 89 cases are those who are still in jail. So we have to go through 89 case files in less than 60 days, you know, working nights and weekends and all that, uh, and complete a final report. Um, And so when you get into that aspect of it, well, what does the review process look like? Well, we don't have time to look at the evidence. Uh, There's Thousands of exhibits, uh, thousands of pages of witness testimony, um, even the abbreviated books that have been published—the uh, the famous Green volumes of, of the Nuremberg Trials—run to uh, fourteen or fifteen volumes, and those are abbreviated. Uh, and so, the decision is made fairly early on. Well, we're just going to read the judgments, <laughs> and the, the, which is. There's a problem with that uh, because the judgments are 80 pages to 100 pages. Usually, Uh, sometimes they're a little closer to 150 or 200, uh, but they're they're just that they're summary judgments uh, that don't take into account every piece of evidence against uh, an individual defendant, but speak to kind of the collective picture that's been established at trial quoting uh, representatively from the most damning uh, pieces of evidence and that sort of thing. And so you have this process that's set up where uh, they're looking at only a fraction of the records. They don't have time to do a deeper dive. And the only voices they're hearing from are the prisoners themselves. There's no... Uh, prosecutors, there's no judges, uh, there's no one to contest these narratives that I discussed earlier, these narratives of victimhood and persecution that the prisoners are putting forward, Um, which again, to go back to this distinction between a clemency panel and an appellate court, this is one of the gray areas where if you treat a clemency panel like an appellate court, it's a problem because appellate courts uh, are venues for contestation. Uh, where you have multiple parties speaking from multiple perspectives. And here it was one solitary uh, voice arguing for leniency. And these people, um, they, they're not monsters, right? Um, I don't mean to, I, I have some kind of snarky and harsh words for them in, in the book as I, as I go through kind of what they did and chart uh, how they acted and that sort of thing. They, but they seem to be have a genuine interest in making sure that no miscarriages of justice took place, but they are incredibly credulous. <laughs> as to uh, what their their German charges are saying at any given time.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, as a result of this, you have, s- have some very powerful words. You write that at the end of McCloy's tenure, fewer Germans recognized the legitimacy of the Nuremberg tribunals than had at its start. And this is a pretty shocking statement. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners just maybe a specific case or two. How are the sentences either reduced or modified that really stood out to you to kind of show how this process played out? Yeah,
1: and, and a, that that uh, statement about fewer Germans recognizing the legitimacy of the Nuremberg Tribunals than at the start, that's a that's a real indictment of McCloy's policy because, again, he viewed himself as shoring up the idea of American justice. He actually thought uh, that by giving a thorough review to the sentences and publishing these findings that he would finally convince kind of a skeptical and weary German population of the legitimacy of the Nuremberg Project. But instead, you get this fairly obvious or, what I think should have been obvious dynamic, where um, every time the US occupation tinkers with the sentences, What does that look like? It looks like uh, the sentences were wrong. Uh, It looks like that justice was not done. Uh, Because if justice was done, why do you need to constantly release people and and cut five years here and five years there? Uh, And why are you constantly relitigating this process over and over again? Because it's not just this uh, clemency panel that we've been talking about from 1950 to 1951. Uh, This is an ongoing process uh, from multiple institutions, 53 to 55, 56 to 58. Over and over and over again. And this constant relitigation is in the press. uh, And it just undercuts the legitimacy, what little legitimacy there is. And you look at polling data and so forth. uh, And there's quite a souring uh, in West German, such as so much as we can measure West German public opinion as a thing uh, when it relates to this issue. There's a notable decline. So a couple of cases like what does this look like? Um, And okay, so one that really stood out to me, because it contains both like real issues of questions of responsibility, um, which is one thing the board is particularly interested in, and it comes dangerously close on multiple occasions to kind of relitigating this discredited superior, order, superior orders defense that had been offered at trial. Um, but so a real issue, instance where that matters, right? I want to take the case of um, Heinz Schubert. Um, Heinz Schubert is an interesting figure in that he's only a lieutenant. Uh, in uh, the SS, uh, and so you would assume, well, this is a person who probably has less responsibility for some things, but he is Otto Ohlendorf's adjutant. Uh, Otto Ohlendorf, uh, the head of Einsatzgruppen uh, D, uh, operating in, in Crimea and uh, southern Ukraine at the time. And so you have a well-documented case where Heinz Schubert is Otto Ohlendorf's adjutant, and most of his day-to-day duties are you know, handling personal correspondence, phone calls, uh, that sort of thing. But on multiple occasions, uh, when Otto Ohlendorf cannot be present for a massacre of Jews uh, or other civilians, uh, he delegates his adjutant, Heinz Schubert, and says, okay, you will go in my stead and observe and command this for me. And the key words there are observe and command, right? So Heinz Schubert, uh, and in particular, uh, just to get the specifics right, there's one particular uh, uh, massacre um, at a place called uh, Simferopol Uh, where it's well documented that between 700 and 800 people are executed by an Einsatzgruppen. So one, you know, drop in the bucket of the broader criminality of the Holocaust by bullets on the Eastern Front. Uh, And so Schubert is there and he admits this, by the way, this is uncontested at trial. Uh, And the evidence backs it up and his own testimony uh, admits that this is true, that he was delegated to go there by Otto Ohlendorf. He was... uh, To make sure that the location of the shooting was sufficiently remote uh, to preclude witnesses. He was there to make sure that the looting of the victims beforehand of personal items and valuables was conducted in an orderly manner and that all the valuables were turned over to the proper authorities and not stolen uh, by the executioners. Uh, And he was also there to make sure that the execution itself was carried out in uh, the most humane and military manner possible. Those are his words. Uh, and if, uh, and it occurred, right. He went, he did, he fulfilled his duty. The executions, uh, went or the murders rather went smoothly, uh, on the stand. He admitted that if things had gotten out of hand, uh, he would have stepped in, in the sense to uh, correct whatever the issue was, whether it's publicity or you know, improper theft, whatever was, establishing clearly that he was in charge. Uh, so you have this execution uh, that took place. He monitored it, he administered it, and so as a result, he, the, the Nuremberg trials viewed him as in command because he was. He was uh, the representative of Otto Ollendorf there, uh, much as if Otto Wollendorf had been there himself. He knew what he was doing, uh, and he did it. And so therefore, he is just as responsible as the other Einsatzgruppen leaders for this execution in spite of the fact that his rank is substantially lower as a lieutenant. Uh, and so like other Einsatzgruppen leaders, he sentenced to death by the tribunal um, at the Einsatzgruppen trial. Now, the advisory board is very concerned about this and says, well, no, this can't be true. This isn't right. He was only there because he was Otto Ollendorf's adjunct. He wasn't actually in charge of the Ninesets Groupman, even though the tribunal had found um, that he was in charge of this operation. Uh, And so after looking over the sentence, uh, the board argues that Schubert's offense was, quote, essentially no different from that of any of the active members of his organization. So even though he's in command, he's no different from uh, any of the trigger men or even someone doing staff work behind the lines. And so they're viewing him as a lieutenant, not as a lieutenant in charge of this operation. And so they recommend that his death sentence be changed to eight years, uh, which is essentially time served. Um, and when they file their report, report to, uh, McCloy, McCloy is a little nervous about that, but he's tends to be a bit more circumspect about SS officers and those involved in the mobile killing operations. So McCloy says, okay, eight years is too little. We'll do 10 years instead. Uh, and so, you know, here you have someone who the facts are uncontested. Uh, these killings happened, he was in charge, he monitored, uh, and yet, um, that this is their interpretation of what justice is because of their kind of blinkered view of what responsibility is. And I have like two other brief examples of this. Um, So one broader uh, would be the entirety of the kind of the Krupp trial, right? So you have these industrialists, you have Alfred Krupp and his board of directors are tried and imprisoned for, on various counts of, uh, especially concerning slave labor and plunder of assets as a result of the Nazi war of aggression in France and the Netherlands and so forth. But slave labor would be um, kind of the key offense there. And Alfred Krupp, uh, who's in charge of the company, and it's called Krupp, right? His father was uh, the, the chairman of the board up through about 1943 until, because of ill health, he stepped aside. And Alfred Krupp's uh, uh, Alfred Krupp's ascension as the chairman of the board and the head of the Krupp firm uh, was even celebrated by Hitler himself, who kind of wrote him a personal letter and made sure that some of the bequests of what had been stolen property of the Reich had gone to Alfred Krupp personally. Right, So the, you have here the regime, in, because of these bizarre circumstances of inheritance and stolen property, the regime itself anointing Alfred Krupp as being in charge of Krupp Enterprises. Um, and so after the Krupp trial, uh, because of slave labor, stolen property, all these other things, uh, Krupp and his board of directors were sentenced to between you know, 10 years and for Krupp and approximately you know, between five and seven for most of the board of directors, sometimes up to 10 for other folks. And also because a large amount of Krupp's property was acquired because of Nazi plunder during the war, uh, there was leveraged the penalty that Krupp had to surrender his assets as well. This was the only time in the Nuremberg trials that this penalty was leveraged. Uh, and this became important for the board, right? Because once again, You don't have a contestation of the facts of the case. Uh, Slave labor was used, uh, this property was plundered and so forth. But you do have a concern that, well, this is a disproportionate punishment. Uh, They say this this has never been applied before. And not only is it wrong uh, because there are other industrialists who go to jail, it's not even applied to mass murders. Why is it that we don't strip Einsatzgruppen commanders' property from them? Uh, And because it's never been employed before, it's only employed in this instance, it must therefore be unjust. And not only is it unjust, and this is where the political aspect comes in, it's un-American because it's collectivist uh, and you can't take people's property. Uh, And so even though this punishment is authorized by occupation statute, and even though the tribunal judgment is very clear, as to why they apply it to Krupp and not to other people. Uh, the rationale is actually that the Krupp firm sought out slave labor and begged for it, whereas other firms like Flick uh, and some of the other industrialists on trial only took it uh, when they had labor shortages and the government uh, kind of forced it on them, uh, which is not to exculpate the other industrialists, but just to say there is a matter of degree between you know, seeking slave labor versus using slave labor. Right? And so the tribunal judgments Uh, based on the evidentiary records, um, were able to kind of parse and navigate these gray areas, but the Clemency Board said no and and saw things in kind of a very black and white uh, matter. So those are just kind of two instances, um, one or the other, and there's many in between. Overall, if you're talking about patterns and trends, there's a tendency to, by statute, the Clemency Board is forbidden from uh, arguing with the facts of the case, Uh, and so instead they, they don't do that. They just say in their writings that, well, we disagree with this interpretation the evidence so they read the judgment and they just disagree with the judgment and so they say well this person who was convicted on this count well they shouldn't be punished for that because they shouldn't have been convicted on that count or they say well we're reading this judgment and we don't think that person's as responsible as the tribunal thought they were uh so and what's most important i think for the story is that the so-called evidence for the board drawing these conclusions is very shaky and thin if it exists at all mostly it's the same old uh discredited alibis that have been circulating for half a decade at this point. But the board is so insistent on uh, taking the prisoners at their word uh, that they generally just reduce uh, sentences in all cases. Wow. That's
2: just shocking uh, in terms of just how they take these stories. There's evidence there and they still, they make judgments. In in your research, did you find that Obviously, this is a case of you, you talk about American justice, but did you find some Were there is this an American phenomenon? Do you see similar efforts in other occupational zones or was this a particularly American trend?
1: Yes. Um, and to go back to your, your point, too, this is like all historical objectivity aside. I wrote this book because. I'm still trying to figure out why they did what they did. Uh, and this is one why you want to go back and you want to grab your sources by the lapels and kind of shake them and just say like, why are you doing this? Like, this is it's fascinating to me, right? Not to turn this into like a, a, a tale of morality and that sort of thing, right? Because we have to remain objective, but it's, it's very frustrating to read these things in real time and to try to understand the, uh, why they're acting this way and not to be too flippant about it, but there is, it's, it's a lot of lawyers who are doing a lot of navel-gazing. And they're very concerned about the, this, this very small piece uh, of their world, which is about, and, uh, and operating um, totally removed from the broader context of what the consequences of their actions are for the occupation, for the memory of the international law and so forth. Um, and it's important to say that, uh, and I'll get back to the actual questions. said, but it's important to say that there's a whole, this did not have to happen this way. There are many people uh, who are just as versed in the law and the facts of the case who are horrified and shocked uh, with what uh, the recommendations are that the board uh, are putting forward. And beyond that, they're horrified and shocked that McCoy would agree with all of this and implement these policy changes. And not just folks like human rights luminaries, uh, international law luminaries, Telford Taylor, Eleanor Roosevelt, former prosecutors, uh, the heads of Various governments and political parties around the world are all shocked and confused uh, with how this uh, kind of plays out. So, but it, to get back to your question, yes, it is very much an American phenomenon. But it's interrelated, right? Like on the one hand, we have to lop off the Soviet Union um, because that's its own story uh, and how they handle their war, their war criminals, but in in through their satellites, but also in occupied, you know, how the East Germans handle it is, is totally different, right? Because there's these initial punishments that tend to be harsher, and but there's also so um, with a lack of due process, uh, but there's also this tendency to not tinker uh, with the sentences once they're once they're decided. And Mary Fulbrook's book uh, "Reckonings" goes into this; it's great to some extent. And then in terms of like the way Soviets, the Soviet Union thinks about the issue of war crimes, um, it's about the IMT. But Francine Hirsch's new book on Soviet judgment in Nuremberg is great on this too. So taking the Soviet Union aside, right? This. The, the, the dynamic between the British and the French and the Americans is really interesting um, in in this respect because it's mutually reinforcing. And it's mutually reinforcing in that all three powers kind of um, nudge one another uh, in different ways and for different reasons. And part of it goes back to just the demographics of the occupation zones. Uh, the British and the French also uh, incarcerate hundreds, if not uh, Thousands of of individuals the same way the Americans do. There's 185 Nuremberg offenders, but there are thousands of others uh, imprisoned by the U.S. uh, in the U.S. Army Dachau Trials Program, right, Uh, which is more for individual acts of um, wanton cruelty or barbarity from individual line soldiers uh, like the Malmedy Massacre or individual concentration camp guards at Dachau and so forth. But if you look at the American occupation zone, because it includes – Bavaria, uh, Munich, Berchtesgaden, uh, where the primary residences are of a number of high-ranking um, officials. That And that's kind of how some of these lists are sorted at the very beginning as far as the occupation. The American zone is where you have kind of this upper strata of the nazi dictatorship concentrated and so the nuremberg project uh, as different from what the british and the french do uh, with their war criminals is much more involved in terms of pedagogy and and the anatomy of the dictatorship on trial you have some famous figures like eric von manstein and uh, alfred Albert Kesselring uh, and and so forth in British custody. But the bulk of these types of people end up uh, on the American side, which means that the sentences are different. Right, So the British and the French sentences tend to be 10 years to 20 years, sometimes life. But there's a lot more kind of capital sentences and life uh, sentences in uh, the U.S. zone of occupation, partly as a result of this, this initial strata. But early on, as, so as, the, as the occupation goes on, there are attempts to normalize war crimes policy against all three states one of the first things that happens is that the British and the French tend to calculate uh, what's called good conduct time differently, right? So if you behave, you're you in prison, you behave yourself, um, for, you follow rules, you're rewarded by having a certain number of days removed from your sentence each month. Um, in the American side, it's uh, five days, and the British and French side, it's 10. McCoy comes in, and he's like, okay, we need to normalize this because everything should be the same. And so you double the American good conduct time to 10 days. So that's just, you know, these small policies, right? Uh, and what undergirds these interactions all along the way is this idea again of fairness and justice and what is fair and what is just. Well, if the British and the French are, have a policy that's out of step with American policy, then someone needs to adjust, right? And everyone needs to be brought along the same page. Conversely, when the American occupation under McCloy starts tinkering with the sentences in the clemency board, uh, it's largely comes as news. It's it's to the British and the French uh, occupation authorities, to the high commissioners um, representing Britain and France. McCloy just does this unilaterally on the American side. And in fact, uh, when he announces his decisions, there's a fair amount of consternation uh, in the British and French press uh, about how far this seems to have gone. But once that has died down, you have these kind of mutually reinforcing bureaucracies where the British and the French are then uh, decide that they should be open later on to their own sorts of clemency panels. This eventually turns into uh, a tripartite uh, intermixed parole and clemency board where you have um, uh, the, the British and the French um, and the Americans uh, represented along with some West German constituents as well to kind of handle all the sentences that exist uh, and all the way through to the point where Uh, when you get to the last couple of folks who are still in prison, the reason why the Nuremberg trial program ends in 1958 and not before is because uh, the longest sentence uh, that was ever hand- served um, in a British or French prison is 13, it's like 12 and a half years, I think, based on a 20 year sentence. Uh, and so you have these three lifers that are left and it's like, well, it's not fair to keep them if everyone else has already gone home. And so we'll normalize that. Uh, Clemency granted 20 years, they've served 13 and a half or 13, it's either 13 or 12 and a half. Uh, and uh, that's on par with the worst offenders that have already gone home in the British and the French sentence. Like so, it's all along the way, um, and there's a lot of technical um, negotiations based around occupation statutes and how the occupation is drawn down in 1955. Uh, but it's it's the key is again mutually reinforcing. The Americans act unilaterally, but once they do, they change the calculus and force the British and the French to kind of catch up and make their own adjustments. Uh, and then when the British and the French do other certain things, the Americans adjust to that. And the the result end result all along the way is more and more clemency, and more and more leniency uh, for all the prisoners.
2: Wow. Just, uh, it, you, you hear this story and it's, well, Rob, you've been very generous with your time. So I just, I just have one more question to kind of tie all these, these threads together. And that is that your monograph reveals a very important story. And that is, uh, you know, I alluded to this and we talked about this in the beginning that for many of our listeners, they assume that justice at Nuremberg is a one-time event. It's over and done with. And actually your work is showing that it's a very different story that that one-time event that idea of justice was not even fully served in many cases. And so with this in mind, what does this tell us about the process of denazification, particularly among the Western allies um, in, in the United States? And is there a really important opportunity for justice that was ultimately missed in this post-war period?
1: Yeah. I mean, I struggle with this uh, too, right? Because, um, like personally, respecting the mantle of historical knowledge and objectivity, it's, it's you know, you, these people were responding to um, uh, incentives of their own time and place, part of which has to with domestic politics, Cold War, bureaucratic imperatives, um, a, a very uh, kind of, if narrow, but genuine respect for the law and what the law means and, and is. But having said that, kind of on a personal, when you step back from it, um, I think the key takeaway for me is about this story that's fascinating is that no one made the Americans do what they did. They didn't have to do this. Uh, they could have done any number of things. And in fact, um, it's often, if you look at Norm Goda's work on uh, work on Spandau, right, the fact that the internet, this never happens for the international military tribunal, partly because of the Cold War, right? The British and the Americans and the French might be able to come to some sort of agreement, but the Soviets won't play ball, uh, and you can't, and so therefore you have, who serves their full sentences? Well, Rudolf Hess is still in jail in 1987. It's ridiculous, but he's still, like, it's a, it's it's a matter of some controversy because he's he's incredibly he's, he's ancient at that point he's a nonagenarian and but he's and he's the only sole occupant but he's still there because of kind of the, the Cold War lines being frozen in time through that institution and did that have some political cost to it yes uh, was it cost some political capital it also cost uh, money every year to keep up. You know Spandau Prison, and this was a constant kind of thorn in the shoe of American officials who were interested in those questions. But the point is, you know, for a certain amount of political cost and physical cost, you could do that if you wanted to. Uh, these people could have served their full sentences. Um, they could. There, you didn't. The American occupation officials did not have to do this. And so, when you talk about an opportunity being lost, um, even if. You know, I'm kind of unclear as a historian about what kind of opportunity was lost and especially 60, 70 years on what the legacy of that lost opportunity might be. Contemporaries at the time certainly thought an opportunity had been lost. Telford Taylor thought that his project for his hopeful project of pedagogical education and, you know, writing something new in international law had been destroyed. Um, there. you know, Eleanor Roosevelt thought that the cause of human rights had been set back. The government of Israel thought that uh, the Holocaust had been minimized and that you know, the, the West German, French, and uh, British left uh, thought that this was cynical Cold War power politics and that uh, the legacy of the Second World War was being betrayed. Uh, because it's So so even if it's, you know, we're not going to take my word for it, there's an opportunity lost. Contemporaries really grappled through this. Um, and this is a matter of, of a great degree of, of controversy. Um, and, but it's also controversy that stems from the best of intentions, which is kind of still remains kind of weird and interesting to me, uh, right? That these people aren't villains. Uh, They're just so concerned with doing justice that they end up perpetrating injustice. And one more thing about kind of a lost opportunity is I close the book by talking about 1958 as a turning point, not just for the, the end of the Nuremberg settlement, the last prisoners walking free, but also the beginning of what we tend to think of now as the general process of coming to terms with the past in West Germany, right? With the the Ulm uh, Einsatzgruppen Group trial and all the publicity that garners and uh, federal resources being poured into um, tracking down and trying perpetrators. The Frankfurt Auschwitz trial will come out of that and so forth. But the lost opportunity there uh, is that, you know, by trying all those crimes under German law, you, that's where you get the bizarre kind of statutes of limitations problems. That's where you get the issues with, you know, you can convict murderers and uh, on lots of, uh, ironclad evidence, but because of how um, timing works and because of the sentences and because of the preoccupation with establishing base intent and all of these things that are grounded in continental domestic criminal law in Europe uh, that you can have murderers will murder uh, 18 months, you know, concentration gap card, uh, six months in prison, so, stuff like that. So is justice at that point symbolic? Is it punitive? That's an opportunity, right? Because Nuremberg did try to offer an alternative path where the punishments would fit the crime uh, the enormity of it. Uh, But ultimately, partly because of the the way the occupation was administered, because Nuremberg was never as popular as Talford Taylor thought it could be, and partly because of the the clemency revisions and all the politics surrounding that, that was a path that was closed. Uh, And it wasn't really opened again until the 90s with the International Criminal Court and Yugoslavia and Rwanda and all of that, that kind of picks up that mantle and moves it forward.
2: Mm -hmm. Well... Professor Hutchinson, you've been very generous. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss After Nuremberg. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been our pleasure. After Nuremberg is available through Yale University Press later this month and other major book outlets. It comes highly recommended for historians that study German history or any sort of legal or justice history as well. It's a very important story uh, throughout the 20th century. So thank you all for tuning in this week, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks. Thank you.